hold of a pair of Jordan sneakers and to ball in them so that you could be like Mike even for just a moment. Jordan had just won at this point. Jordan had just won his first NBA championship. He was NBA Finals MVP, and he was also MVP of the league. And yet he was just beginning. He would go on to win six NBA championships, six NBA Finals MVPs, and five MVPs of the league. Jordan had victory. He had fame. Every time he stepped onto the court or into the room, he was the most important person. For many in the world, Jordan was as good as it got. He was the example of greatness, and it seemed like everybody looked up to him. Because for the world, status is knit to performance. Everyone wanted to be like Mike. But what about you? Who would you say you want to be like? Who would you say that you want to be like? In our sermon passage this morning, Paul gives us a list of names that most of us have never even heard of. Names that are even hard to pronounce. People who aren't MVPs of the Greco-Roman world. People with names like Tychicus and Onesimus and Aristarchus and Nympha. And yet these co-workers of Paul exemplified everything that he had been preaching to the church in Colossae. They were examples of what it looks like to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So who were these people? And what can we learn from them about walking in Christ? Well, let's find out. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. Today marks the final sermon in our month-long series in the book of Colossians. And for over the last month, we've been taking a broader approach to Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. Rather than taking a Google Earth view of the book in one sermon, or even a street-level view of the book in 12 sermons, we've decided to take a skydiving approach to the letter to get a clear lay of the land, to see how its themes fit together into a unified and a timely message for us today. And the message that we have heard is that Christ is enough. Christ is enough. He is unmatched. He is unparalleled by anything else. We don't need to supplement or to add on to Christ to be more spiritual because Christ is our very life. That the spiritually fruitful life is one that is filled up with Christ day in and day out. And this speaks to the theme of the letter, that our spiritual maturity rests on Christ's supremacy. Our spiritual maturity rests on Christ's supremacy. And yet, as we all know, we can be so quick to set our minds on hundreds of competing spectacles and distractions. Even as you came here this morning, you might have been distracted and had your mind focused on other things. And so this sermon series is really about readjusting our focus to Christ. That's what it's about. It's focusing upon Jesus. And so as the credits begin to roll, concluding this letter, Paul doesn't just tell us what spiritual faithfulness looks like. 
he actually gives us examples to live by today. So let's read Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha in the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. I think the main idea of this text for us this morning is this. That partnering in gospel ministry produces spiritual maturity. Partnering in gospel ministry produces spiritual maturity. And as Paul names off his co-workers in ministry, I think we see six marks of their work for Christ that encourage us in our walk with Christ. Six marks from their work for Christ that encourage us in our walk with Christ. And these marks will really serve as an example of some of the, scene, of some of the themes that we've actually already seen in the letter so far. And so the first mark of their ministry that we see is that it's servant-minded. Point number one, it's servant-minded. And we're going to go through these points as they come to us. I'm not going to give them all at once. Point number one, it's servant-minded. As Paul closes this letter, he puts his personal touch on it. He wants to inform the church in Colossae about his situation in prison, but he doesn't want to spill ink distracting them from the mystery of the gospel that he had just so gloriously proclaimed. And so to add to his personal touch, he sends two of his co-workers to them, Tychicus and Onesimus. And these letter carriers served as Paul's representatives to the church in Colossae. They extended his ministry to them. You could say that they were Paul's letter really in the flesh. And often, as these letter carriers would get there with their letter, they would begin to elaborate and begin to explain further the letter that they were delivering. And so to give credibility to these men, notice how Paul describes them. Paul describes Tychicus in verse 7 as a beloved brother and faithful minister and a fellow servant in the Lord. The word minister in verse 7 is the word for deacon. Paul's not speaking about an office. Rather, he's speaking about an action. He is one who serves 
others. He's also described as a fellow servant or a slave or a bondservant in the Lord. Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother in verse 9. You might recall that Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave or bondservant, and Paul calls him a beloved brother. Later in verse 12, Paul describes Epaphras, who probably planted the church in Colossae as a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul is showing us that there is no hierarchy between him and his co-workers before God. All Christians ultimately belong to God and they serve him in service to one another. And so the mindset, the mindset of Paul's co-workers is that of a servant. It's servant, as it should be for all of God's people, because the one whom they serve came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Or as Paul put it back in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the Father has redeemed us from slavery to sin in the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son where we are now freed servants of Christ whose sins are forgiven. But friend, I wonder if you have experienced that kind of freedom this morning. Have you experienced this freedom in Christ. The scriptures tell us that we are slaves to sin, that our chains are self-made chains. And like skydiving with a defective parachute, we may feel that we're free for the moment, but our death is imminent. Or as Paul put it, the wage that sin pays you as its slave is death. It's death. It's death. It's death. That's its wage that you receive. And yet, Christ died to free us from this slavery to sin by dying our death for us so that we might serve him as our heavenly master who always looks out for the good of his people and provides true freedom from sin and death. So do you have this freedom? Do you have this freedom in Christ? If not, turn from your sin and trust in him for freedom to serve him and to serve a better master who doesn't pay you death, but he gives you life. Brothers and sisters, for us, we've been freed from being a slave to serving ourselves to be able now to serve others in service to our master in heaven. We serve out of a love for Christ who has freed us to serve him. However, sadly, what we often see today is more savior-mindedness rather than servant-mindedness. People using the name of Jesus in order to make a name for themselves, in order to build a platform, to gain an audience, to have a voice, to be acknowledged for all the great things that they have done. And sadly, we're all capable of this. We're all capable of this. And so we need to be asking ourselves if we view service in the church as ultimately about meeting our own felt needs by utilizing our giftedness 
Or do we serve to bring glory to God for the good of others? We've got to ask ourselves that question. Because as servants of Christ, we don't use Jesus as a prop for our praise, but for his. We serve, not to be seen, but to showcase Christ. That's servant-mindedness. Consider those who serve in the sound booth. Here you go, guys. Sound booth. We often don't notice them unless something is going wrong, right? It's a thankless position. We don't notice them unless something is going wrong. They're tucked away from sight. And so why do they serve? Well, clearly it's not to be seen because they're not being seen. But they serve so that all of us in here can hear the word of God preached. They serve so that we can hear Christ. That's why they serve. Those who serve in nursery serve so that parents can be edified by the preaching of God's word. The preacher, he doesn't stand in place of Christ. He gives Christ to the people. Paul served the church in Colossae by exalting Christ to them through this letter. Epaphras served the church in, Ephes- or in, in Colossae by planning it so that the gospel may bring light to that region. Tychicus and Onesimus served the church by delivering this letter so that the church might be built up in Christ. Nympha offered up her home in service to the church so that they could gather in a place to be able to hear the word of God preached. Brothers and sisters, wherever it may be, in whatever it may look like, find a place to serve in the church, whether that's with parking and greeting, ushering, or with sanitation crew, wiping down doors on Sunday mornings. Serve others so that they can see Christ's supremacy more clearly. Paul's co-workers, they didn't use Jesus as a prop for their glory, but they served others as a conduit for God's. Well, not only is their ministry servant-minded, but it's also encouraging. Point number two, it's encouraging. In verse eight, Paul gives the purpose for why he sent Tychicus. And that purpose is more than just carrying a letter. He says in verse eight, I send him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Part of Tychicus encouraging the church is by updating them on Paul and his co-worker's situation. However, I don't think it's just that. I think it's more than that. It's to encourage them in the truth of the gospel. Back in Colossians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul uses the same word to speak of the purpose of his own mission. He says that that part of his mission is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. That word for encourage right there has this idea of comfort to it. Speaking of the comfort that comes presently from our future salvation at Christ's return. And so Tychicus is sent to encourage or comfort their hearts with the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of the gospel, which we saw with Paul in his own mission. We see another example of this with Aristarchus and Mark and Justice being a comfort to Paul in prison in verse 11. Though Paul may be in chains, the gospel isn't. Neither is his hope, which is laid up in heaven. Paul needed to be comforted 
by the truth. And that's exactly what they did. And we need to be comforted and encouraged by that truth as well. As Ed Moore put it at the men's retreat back in March, biblical encouragement isn't a pep talk. It's not a halftime motivational speech. It's not manipulation or a pat on the back or how to win friends and influence people. No, biblical encouragement is always rooted in the gospel. It's through this encouragement and this comfort that Paul, the church in Colossae, and for us today, that we are strengthened to continue in the faith. As Paul says, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel when the effects of this fallen world begin to wage war against us. As we see back in chapter 1, verse 23, what Paul's doing right here, Paul is reminding them of their insufficiency so that through their mutual encouragement, they would see Christ's supremacy. That's what he's doing. Well, not only did Paul and his co-workers seek to encourage, but he also commanded the church in Colossae to do so as well. Look at verse 17. Paul commands the church to say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. As we learn in Philemon 2, Archippus was part of Philemon's household, and he was apparently called to fulfill the ministry that was given to him by the Lord to instruct the believers there at Colossae. Many think that that, uh, Archippus was the son of Philemon. Now, we're not told why Archippus needed this encouragement. We're not told why. It's possible that he was discouraged or tired from the weight of ministry. That's real. But whichever it may be, Archippus needed their encouragement to fulfill the ministry that God had given to him. And pastors need to hear that today. And UBC, I just want to encourage you. I praise God for you all. Over the the last four years that I've been serving here, you've been nothing but encouraging. And I'm not the only one that would say that. There are many others that would say that with how you have encouraged them in the ministry to keep going on. I've seen this time again and again. Encouragement that is not ultimately based upon flattery or just kind of ego boosting, but encouragement that is rooted in the gospel, that's rooted in the truth. And so, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you to keep encouraging others as well. Encourage your elders and your deacons, your pastoral staff, and all those who serve you on Sunday morning and throughout the week. You don't know what kinds of discouragements that they're going to be going through throughout the week with the weight of ministry. But your encouragements, your comfort that you give to them can strengthen them to persevere in the ministry that the Lord has given to them. So whether it's through a letter, a text, or a phone call, whatever it may look like, consider one way that the Lord has blessed you with his word through their ministry and then tell them about it. Let them know about it. As Christ was on the cross, bearing the weight of God's wrath against our sin, in agony, he turns to one of the criminals on the cross who professed faith in him, and he says to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Christ gives comfort in the midst of, of crucifixion. 
His words are grounded in truth, and that truth comforts. And surely if Christ can encourage and comfort from the cross, we ought to be able to do the same for one another. As it's been put, if you see something, then say something. If you see something, then say something. Well, not only is this ministry servant-minded and encouraging, but it's also diverse. Point number three, it's diverse. Look with me at all the names given in this greeting section. First, we have Tychicus, who is mentioned in Acts chapter 20, verse 4, as being from the Roman province of Asia. We're not told exactly what city or what town he's from, just that he's from the Roman province of Asia. Next up is Onesimus. We all know Onesimus was Philemon's runaway slave or bondservant from Colossae. We also learn from Acts chapter chapter 20, verse 4, that Aristarchus in verse 10 is from Thessalonica and is a Jewish Christian, as we see in verse 11, along with Mark and Justice, men of the circumcision, as it says. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, who is from Jerusalem. We don't know anything about Justice except that he is a Jewish Christian. Epaphras as we've become acquainted with throughout the letter, is a Gentile Christian from Colossae who probably heard the gospel from Paul as he was preaching in Ephesus and then delivered that gospel to Colossae, to those in Colossae, and planted the church there. Luke, in verse 14, is a Gentile missionary. He's a companion to Paul. He wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. Not much is known about Demas other than he was a Gentile who deserted Paul and went to Thessalonica as we just heard Glory read in the, in the uh, Scripture reading. Nympha, in verse 15, was probably a wealthy single woman or a widow that hosted the church in, in Laodicea in her house. And finally, Archippus, as I mentioned earlier, was from Colossae and was a part of Philemon's household and might have even been his son. Now, what's the point of that exercise? Just name it a bunch of names, where they're from. What's the point of that? Well, the point of that is to show the diversity of Paul's network of ministry. Not everyone looked the same. Clearly not everybody talked the same or had the same background. There was both male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, wealthy and poor, just as Paul speaks of in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Paul practices what he preaches He's showing us that the church isn't made up of a one-size-fits-all believer or co-worker in Christ. It's a reminder that the cross of Christ creates a new humanity, and it breaks down all dividing walls of hostility. Our new status in Christ defies the status distinctions that are ingrained in the Greco-Roman culture of Paul's day and even ingrained within the culture of our own day. The common denominator of this new humanity is no longer sin in Adam. Rather, it's Christ. This diverse network of people understood that what affords us a place in God's family is not one's culture, it's not one's race, it's not one's political affiliation or gender, but it's being united to Christ. As Pastor Micah Edmondson once wrote, we all need the same blood and the same empty tomb. What unites this group of people in Colossians 4 is the gospel because the gospel is transcultural. 
It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, regardless of one's culture. And brothers and sisters, don't forget that this diversity in ministry, it didn't happen. It wasn't happening without someone preaching the gospel. Paul asked for a prayer for that very thing in the passage just before this one. And it's a reminder to us to not let the demographic barriers of our society hinder us from preaching the gospel to those who we think have nothing in common with us. Jesus has torn down all those barriers in his flesh, and he has sent us out to pursue people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The point isn't whether or not we're like this or that person. That's not the point. The point is that we, as mankind, are alienated from God, and yet he has now reconciled us to himself through his son's death. This is good news to be proclaimed to any and everyone. That's good news. That's why we preach. That's the point. And it's to be preached indiscriminately. Many will long for diversity in the church and complain of its lack without assessing their own work of proclaiming Christ among those who are different from them. Brothers and sisters, may we pray for greater diversity here as we proclaim the gospel out there. Well, this ministry isn't servant-minded. Well, this ministry is servant-minded. It's also encouraging it's diverse, and it's also costly. Point number four, it's costly. As Paul signs off his letter in verse 18, he says, remember my chains. It's a vivid picture, a vivid reminder of Paul's current imprisonment for the gospel as well as the potential cost for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. Aristarchus knew this in verse 10. He is a fellow prisoner for the gospel alongside Paul. And so Paul is protecting them. He's protecting the church from falling prey to the false teachers' overrealized eschatology that believes our best life can be achieved right now, that you can have it. It's prosperity theology. And if you're suffering, well, then you just might not have enough faith. That's what he is protecting this church from. And yet by calling them to remember his chains, Paul is reminding them and protecting them from a false view of suffering. Rather than being avoided, suffering being avoided, Paul says that it's cause for rejoicing. As he says in Colossians 1, 24, we can rejoice because our future is certain and our future is better than what this life has to offer. That any amount of suffering, no matter how great, isn't worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. And who would know of that glory than Paul? He'd seen that glory, and he is, he is able to be able to tell us it doesn't compare to what we are going to receive. Nothing compares to that glory that we will one day receive. This also clarifies why we suffer. Paul is suffering. He is toiling. He is struggling. He is struggling right here for the sake of their maturity in Christ. 
He is showing us that suffering isn't an end in itself, but it points to our full maturity in Jesus. Suffering, Paul is saying, is inevitable. It's coming. If you're in Christ, you will suffer. Take it to the bank. Jesus said as much to his own disciples in John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And yet in the midst of suffering's inevitability is Christ's sufficiency. And yet sadly, afflictions not only come from being persecuted, but also from being deserted. Such was the case with Demas, who was a co-worker of Paul's. A couple of years later, in Paul's second imprisonment in Rome, a couple of years later, he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas deserted Paul because he'd been captured by deceptive philosophy. You can just imagine the pain that Paul felt with a friend that had deserted him while he's in prison and while he's probably about to be executed. And though no one stood by him in his defense, the Lord did. And the Lord strengthened Paul so that through him the message might be fully proclaimed to the Gentiles. Brothers and sisters, this is a reminder for us that suffering will come, but you're not alone in your suffering. Not only do you have one another, but ultimately, even greater than that, Christ is supreme. You have Christ who is with you to the end of the age, ready to pick you up, to gather you up, and to help you continue on, to strengthen you, to bear that load of suffering. Whether it's suffering hostility from family for your faith, or you getting blacklisted at work because you didn't support an event that was against your conscience, or a close friend who tells you that they would rather pursue the world than profess faith to follow Jesus. The Lord is sufficient to strengthen you for the maturity of the saints. And so remember Paul's chains. Remember his chains as you toil to present others mature in Christ. Suffering is inevitable. And yet Christ's supremacy is also inevitable. This ministry isn't servant mind, is servant-minded, it is encouraging, it is diverse, it is costly, and it is also prayerful. Point number five, it's prayerful. The prayer warrior. Immediately, the people that probably come to your mind are Wayne and Mildred Summers. Prayer warriors. You probably use that language to describe someone yourself, someone you know that you can depend on to pray for you. Epaphras was that kind of guy. Look at how he's described in verse 12. He's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why? That you may stand firm or stand mature, fully assured in all the will of God. Now that word for struggling right there speaks of fighting and wrestling like an athlete in a race or a match. It's the same word used for Paul or used by Paul in Colossians 1.29 to speak of his own toil his own struggle in ministry. And we see the noun form of that word with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Luke twenty two forty four, 44, where he's in agony, 
where he is in agony, praying earnestly to the point where he sweats drops like blood. The connection with all of these, with all of these contexts, is that they're praying for the Lord's will to be done, which is exactly what Epaphras prays for right here. He prays that they would stand firm or stand mature and fully filled or complete, fully assured in all the will of God. Why is that? Why is that? Because their fullness in Christ is the goal. That's the goal. It's the same thing that Paul was praying back in Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14, that Cole's preaching on this morning. What we see is that a life of walking in Christ is a life that wrestles with God in prayer. It's not a hit and run. I pray this thing for one person, and then I just scat, and I don't bring it up again. It's not a hit and run kind of prayer. This is a wrestling, right? It's coming back again and again before the throne of grace, pleading with God to work on behalf of this other brother or sister in Christ. It's a life concerned with their maturity and conformity to God's will. Epaphras isn't just praying for them to be safe, to have a good day. He isn't just praying for them to feel well physically, as good as those things can be. He's praying for what matters most spiritually, that they would be like Jesus. I love how the late John Stott puts this in his commentary on 1 John. He says this, Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will on God or for bending his will to ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. It's by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and then align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation on the theme, your will be done. It's very Stott-esque. Brothers and sisters, would you describe your prayer life like that? That's a hard question for all of us. Would you describe your prayer life like this? What type of things are you praying for, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do they look like that? Do they align with God's will in his word? Or are they a lot of secondary matters? Would you describe your prayer life as a struggle, a wrestling with God? Is that how you would describe it? Brothers and sisters, we can only wrestle in prayer for others because Christ first wrestled in agonizing prayer for us. And that frees us to be able to wrestle on behalf of others before God. Well, not only is this ministry prayerful, but it's also relational. The final point, point number six. From the very outset, we've seen this network of coworkers from all over the Roman Empire. We've gone through them name by name. And yet what's incredible to see is their genuine concern and their care for one another, even though they don't even know one another. Paul doesn't even know these people in Colossae. Many of his own co-workers don't know them. And though some may be off in Rome doing their thing, they still care about what's going on in this small church, in the insignificant town, in the backwoods of the empire. They still care. 
Even the Colossians were to have a mutual concern for the church down the road in Laodicea. And Laodicea was to have a concern for the church in Colossae through the reading of Paul's letters to each of those churches. Even this letter as a whole is out of concern and care for this church in Colossae, whom Paul didn't even know, but he had only heard about. It's out of concern for them. All of this serves as a reminder that ministry, it isn't like golf. Ministry isn't like golf. It's not a solo sport. God's work is much greater than what's going on in Rome. It's much greater than what's going on in Colossae, in Laodicea, or at UBC. Rather, he's at work all over the globe, in the small village in Africa, in the yurt in Mongolia. What goes on down the road or overseas with other partners in ministry ought to be our concern and our interest as well. That's why it's called a partnership in the gospel. And brothers and sisters, consider that part of your own money that you give goes to support the work of ministry throughout the world through our direct support partners and our short-term mission partners. And yet, like we've seen in this greeting section of the letter, all of these co-workers knew what was going on with the work in Colossae. They wanted to get their greeting in there. Hey, Paul, tell them I'm greeting them. Right? They wanted to greet the church in Colossae. And the, and the Colossians did that as well when they received this letter. And I want to encourage you not to only just continue giving, but to know even better to be actively engaged and informed about what those dollars actually go toward in the ministry that they're going toward. Know those ministries intimately and how you can be regularly praying for them, sending encouraging texts, emails to workers upon the field. Be conversant about each of our works on the field and be diligent in praying for them. Currently, we have Travis and Beth Burkhalter that are here this morning that are back in town from Columbia. And so set aside time tonight to hear about their work at the quarterly conference. If you're not able to make it to the conference, try to schedule a time along with other members to hear more about their ministry and how you can be involved through prayer or even through considering moving overseas to be a part of that ministry or the part of the work of other ministries that we're supporting. Brothers and sisters, God uses these partnerships in the gospel. He uses partnerships in gospel ministry to mature us in Christ. And all of these marks serve as examples for us in what it means to walk in Christ. That's what they show us. So who do you want to be like? Who do you want to be like? For Michael Jordan, the greatness that came from the game of basketball still hasn't brought him peace. The status that was tied to his performance in the world's eyes, it isn't enough for him. It's an addiction. He wants more. And it wasn't meant to be enough for him. What he hoped would bring fullness has brought him emptiness at times. And if that's the case, do we really want to be like Mike or anyone else who strives after those things? In the gospel, Jesus' performance gives us a new status. And all who are united to him are filled in him in whom the deity dwells bodily. The examples of 
worthy of following aren't going to be the greatest in the world's eyes, but they're growing in fullness in God's. Brothers and sisters, partnering in gospel ministry produces spiritual maturity, and our spiritual maturity rests upon Christ's supremacy. So live like Christ is enough. Let's pray.